Welcome back to AR Zone on the issue of intersectionality. Brief interviews ahead of the pro-intersectionality vegan conference being held at VegFest London in October 2016. I'm AR Zone founder Carolyn Bailey, and I'm joined for these special podcasts by Christopher Sebastian. Today, Sebastian and I celebrate the 10th episode in our series on intersectionality by welcoming our special guest, Carol J. Adams. Carol has been one of the most inspirational leaders of the animal advocacy movement for decades. She's a writer, speaker and activist, as well as a mentor to countless animal advocates. As well as writing the groundbreaking book, The Sexual Politics of Meat, Carol has authored more than 20 other books, countless articles and essays in magazines, journals and in other books. Since the 1970s, Carol's activism has been deeply involved in the real world experience of working for social justice. For example, against domestic violence, homelessness, racism and violence toward both humans and other animals. Carol, it's a real pleasure to welcome you to AR Zone today. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, both of you, Sebastian and Carolyn, for taking the time to um, ask me questions and converse with me about this important issue. Oh, absolutely. We're thrilled to have you. And like as our 10th guest, I feel like we should have greeting cards or something for this. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Carol, recently in the US, there was a tape released in which Donald Trump referred to women in awfully derogatory ways, perpetuating a rape culture and violence against women and girls. He defended this by saying it was just words. This seems like an example from the sexual politics of me. What are your thoughts on this? You're right. It It is unfortunately a wonderful example of a terrible thing. I think I'll just put a footnote here and say, ever since Sexual Politics of Meat came out, people have been sending me their examples. And I look at them and I think, ugh. And then I think, oh, because they're terrible. And yet there they are proving the point and so explicitly. So I sat down this morning with his tape because I was going to update the Sexual Politics of Meat slideshow and looked at it very carefully it just reeks of sexual politics of meat in specific i talk in the sexual politics of meat about animals and women being overlapping absent reference whose lives are treated by those who are dominant as immaterial so that what that life means to the person living it has is it doesn't matter so the first thing i noticed with that three minute tape is the way trump and billy bush talk about women women are absent reference what they want is immaterial he talks about coming on wanting to fuck her wanting to have sex he puts tic tac in in case he wants to kiss this woman immediately none of that shows any sort of recognition that reciprocity or equality matters. The woman is an object. The second thing I noticed with the tape is that in the second chapter of the sexual politics of meat, I talk about how women and animals experience oppression through a, a trinity of forces, objectification, fragmentation, and consumption. And I find that in the tape too. First of all, the way they talk about the women as objects, the, the, the w- way women disappear as subjects of their own lives. And then the fragmentation. They're talking about 
someone who perhaps got a breast replacement. Um, they talk about legs. Look at those legs. They are uh, then uh, Trump talks about uh, grabbing a woman by her vagina, though he uses another sexual politics of meat example, which is to refer to a woman as uh, animal like through use of language about animals for women's body parts. So then there's that fragmentation, legs, breasts. Women aren't whole beings. They are simply body parts. And then finally, consumption, consumption of the dead animal who'd been fragmented through meat eating and consumption or consummation, visual consumption of the woman by looking at her, the patriarchal gaze, and then consummation, the rape culture that you started with, sexual assault. I've been calling him the sexual assault presidential candidate because that's what he's describing when he grabs a, a woman by a, a, a specific body part, that that is sexual assault. So that's how he's, that's his consummation of this uh, process of objectification, fragmentation, th- this feeling that he has the freedom to do whatever he wants to someone else. I deplore every aspect of it. And what frightens me is to know that we're being told that there are even more examples of that. I think we're going to find uh, he's been racist on uh, open mics. We'll probably see in his racism the same sort of thing where a person of color is animalized, just as the woman was being animalized through this process that uh, I've just described. So in the sexual politics of meat, I say women are animalized and animals are feminized or sexualized. But because interlocking oppressions, that process of animalizing someone on the other side of the species barrier, you know, a human being, but a, a disempowered human being, applies to people of color and people of different ethnicities, the way he talked about Muslims, it has this tinge of animalization as well. So I'm worried that NBC isn't going to release the other tapes that illustrate even further how reprehensible his views are and his actions are, but also that would provide a way for us to converse about interlocking oppression. So the final thing I'll say, and I know it took me a while to answer this question, but I've never seen so much conversation, sort of so much progressive conversation about feminism and the problem with racism and the problem with rape culture in sort of general media as I've seen this year. And to me, that's fascinating. Thanks, Carol. One of the things that that I simply don't understand about what's happening with his language is, like, his language clearly devalues both women and other animals, and it supports patriarchy. Why are so many women still defending him? I guess that's the million-dollar question. I, I think there's a few answers 
The first answer that came to mind is something that Andrea Dworkin said way back in the 1980s in a book called Right Wing Women. And Andrea said that right wing women have the same analysis of sexual violence and the rape culture. It wasn't called that in the 80s, but that right wing women have the same analysis of sexual violence that feminists have. They've just come up with a different solution. Their solution is to opt for protection by one patriarchal male rather than the feminist solution, which is to try to end rape culture. So women who've chosen that very privatized solution where they're supposed to be safe in the home because they've got one male protecting them have already accepted the view that this is how men are. So this doesn't undo their view of Trump because they've already they already believed that they might not have articulated it, but there's already this belief. And that's why they've chosen chosen the safety of the, of, of the patriarchal home, the privatized solution. I think a second thing is I, I was talking about this with my brother in law. He's a retired therapist and we were together last weekend and he was saying that the problem with conspiracy theorists is they don't trust any media, that they have no evaluative ability to say this thing from the Times or these endorsements by more than 100 newspapers or this from papers that never endorse, all of this is telling me something about Donald Trump. But the conspiracy theorist says none of this is reliable. But now comes a tape that is showing him acting like that. And so some some conspiracy theorist right wing people have peeled off from him because what he's done is he's uh, gone against the sanctity of marriage. He was newly married and he's talking about a woman who's married. But again, we're, we're seeing a lot of women who because they believe the United States government is vile. They've accepted all these conspiracy theorists, you know, the, the blaming of the wrong people. They're going to hold on to the person who represents to them not his sexual assaultive behavior, but his uh, refusal to play the game of politics in, in a general way. I think the third thing is, is that the right wing has hated Hillary Clinton for 30 years. And so it's hard to undo that, the lies that have grown up around her. It's kind of like one layer after another. I'm trying to think of a vegan food example, sort of like a phyllo piling over and over again on top of something. So that you unravel one, you have to unravel another. You have to, when do you ever get back to the essence of what happened back in 1992, when people started really hating her. To me, those are three reasons. There are probably many others, but I kept coming back to Andrea Dworkin's right-wing women uh, for an explanation. Thanks, Carol. Um, it's actually been really big news here in Australia as well. And as you said before, I guess we can look at it in a positive way that sexual violence has never been spoken about this much and this openly in mainstream media before. So I guess there's something positive there. 
if I used the word positive earlier. I oh no no sorry no okay. no you didn't use the word positive. Okay. I was I, I was just saying that it's it's a good thing that this is being spoken about because I don't think that it's spoken about anywhere near enough. So I guess if you have to find something positive to come out of it. I think I think the way I'd say it is that the whole thing of his campaign is a tragedy mm. and that what it has revealed isn't about him. It's about people who still follow him despite his mocking someone with a disability, despite his mocking Muslims, despite his racist statements over and over again, despite his business practices, despite his treatment of women through his marriages and his serial affairs, it, it kind of knocks me off my seat that anyone still follows him. And, and, and that's why you asked that question, Carolyn. But to me, what Friday's release of the tape did is it shows it shows him doing what everybody knew he did. Perhaps that raised it to a new threshold, but it also made me feel bad. Like, oh, this this is what people are going to finally respond to. He, he's been violating every cultural norm for months. And how must people of color feel? How must mm -hmm. much must Muslims feel? How much must the disability movement feel that this is the tipping point? Because it does seem that something dramatic happened. So I'll just say that perhaps why this is the tipping point is it wasn't about women per se. It was about men's daughters and men's wives. We're still the absent referent, but we're, they're supposed to be this kind of patriarchal norm. You don't touch someone else's wife. You don't go after someone else's daughter or your own. And that's what got violated so that you've got these, you know, we're still within this very male dominant culture in the reaction. I think what really has to be looked at more is how triggering this has been for women. I have gotten so many emails and Facebook messages from women who whose own sexual assaults had never been named. Women my age in the 70s, you know, in the 1970s, you know, how they were touched in an unwanted way, how someone came on to them and they had they they buried it as they were supposed to back then before we actually named it, you know, when the feminist movement has just come. And all of this triggers these flashbacks and this feeling of lack of safety. and. Perhaps the outpouring on Twitter to the Canadian woman who said, tell me about the first time you were sexually assaulted. And, you know, millions of women have responded. I don't think anybody ever understood how widespread it was, except radical feminists. It's exactly what Catherine McKinnon and Andrea Dworkin were talking about in the 80s. And they got criticized for their radical feminist analysis. But that Twitter feed proves exactly what they were saying. Women live in sexual oppression the way fish live in water. It's so much a part of our lives, we don't even notice it. This is, 
the thing that because Trump is so visible, he's brought what we don't generally notice into the public domain and brought about this conversation. And I just hope that our culture can draw on these important feminist analyses that help us recognize why this is so widespread and why it's so hard to stop it. I did an article in Open Democracy, and you might want to link to it. I can send it to you. It came out at the end of August, and so it was just before Labor Day. So it didn't get kind of the response I thought it would. I I mean, I thought it was (laughs) – I don't always think that about my writings. I'll just say that. But I thought that one was really good. I thought more people <laughs> would would want to read it. But I talked about the pin that was uh, that circulated at oh, it's been circulating for more than a year about Hillary Clinton, and it was for sale at the Republican convention, and it said. KFC Hillary special, two fat thighs, two small breasts, and a left wing. And so I use that pin as a way to talk about the sexual politics of meat, you know, wings, thighs, and breasts, that an individual who matters so little that her body parts can be consumed for someone else's enjoyment, that all of that language is drawing on the normativeness of meat eating and kind of naturalizing meat eating at the same time that it's naturalizing and normalizing um, misogyny. And one of the things I think in the past year that I've been tracking is how much misogyny is using either the meat language for women or this animalizing language to go after any strong woman. Just to take it back to intersectionality, the misogyny against Hillary is tied in with this belief that people rarely acknowledge that men are humans, but women are women and women are women. And that puts us closer to the species barrier, makes us more female-like, makes us more animal-like that the whole struggle of the presidential campaign uh, reduced to a soundbite is can any woman be seen as human instead of woman? Now, I know that the concept of human is very problematic and we're all going to be benefit when we've moved beyond it. But at this point, the crisis in our culture is this resistance to seeing a woman as human. I myself want to redefine human. I don't want human to be a marker that has this species line. But at the moment, the tension that we see and the, 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 the huge misogyny against her is a re- reminiscent or a reminder of <clears throat> the sexual politics of meat in the sense that she the tendency is to animalize her. Trump is continually humanized because human in our conception is the white middle class or upper class male the successful white businessman male or philosopher, white philosopher male. This is our traditional notion of what human is. She doesn't conform. And so what what's the result? I mean, Trump rallies reduce her to body parts 
jail the c-u-n-t they'll say they they reproduce the sexual politics of meat and their attitudes towards her so what's interesting in this election cycle is that politics and sexual politics have completely enmeshed or illustrated how enmeshed they've always been Mm. Things don't change from country to country. We um, had a woman who was our prime minister here for a number of years. And all the things that you're saying that have happened to Hillary Clinton, very similar things happened to Julia Gillard. I I have a copy of the menu that was yes. uh, yeah. circulated about her, which was pretty much the same thing. It said Julia exactly. Gillard, Kentucky Fried Quail, small breasts, huge thighs and a big red, big red box. Exactly. But here's yes. the point. Two of the most powerful women in the world, and yet their opponents reduce them to sexualized body parts so that they participate in the viewpoint that women exist to please someone else, back to the absent referent, not to act in their own self-interest. So body parts, what do we know about body parts? Body parts don't have a voice. Body parts don't have a will. Body parts are completely there for someone else. I just wanted to mention Julia Gillard because it really it's it's amazing that all the things, a lot of the things that have happened to Hillary Clinton, I've not heard of because obviously I'm on the other side of the world. And when Carol was mentioning some of the things that have happened to her, it just, it, it, it was amazing that all the same sort of things have happened to Julia Gillard. They, um, they, they, there was a sign that people have held up at protests for Julia Gillard saying, ditch the witch. And, right. and just, you know, it's just so similar to what's happened to Hillary on the other side of the world. So obviously, you know, it's not just a Donald Trump thing. It's it's no, but Donald Trump is a reflection of the culture. That's exactly. the whole thing. I mean, if we ever reduced it to being just Donald Trump, we're in trouble. Right, right. Donald right. Trump is it illustrates illustrates a problem with the culture. Now, on the other side of that, one of the things, another way to reinforce sort of sexism and speciesism, that interlocking thing, are all these meat ads that put down a man who's seen as choosing vegetable food or not eating enough meat. And so how do you put them down? You call them ladies. You call mm -hmm. them, you, you somehow put them down by saying, oh, you're not human. You're not acting like a man and the man is human. You're acting like a woman. So you know, to be reabsorbed into the meat masculine culture, you've got to act a certain way and you've got to be dominant over women and you have to eat animal body parts. It's not that we've just got one thing going on, which is the viewing of women and animals as body parts and their object like status in relationship to a patriarchal culture and, and men as the humans over them. But you've also got the message to men that they've got to conform to that or or else they're going to be criticized, uh, excluded. I mean, one of the other things in the tape is the way Billy Bush doesn't just enable him. But once they get off the bus, actually works on Trump's behalf to get him sexual access to a woman. And we know that this is part of how male bonding works is the way men who who believe women are objects together confirm each other's point of view 
And so we see that in MEDAT, how looking at women is part of how one enjoys meat. So it's like you're getting it two different ways. And people say, well, now we get to see it. We, we see it in this Trump video, but we've seen it all along in meat ads. People don't want to see that part. They don't really want us to name it too closely. Just name it enough to handle, you know, the first level of disturbance, but don't name it so well that you really identify these sort of interlocking or overlapping oppressions and talk about what people are eating for supper. Don't go that far. Yeah, absolutely. Recently, recently, one of AFCO's quotes, you remember AF. Um, oh one of AF's, yeah, She's I so know. Wonderful. Oh my I God. know, right? I'm um, her fan. I am a huge AF fan. Like, you know, yes. I, I feel very privileged to know her. But one of her quotes, um, completely without context, went viral on social media. Um, Milo Yiannopoulos, as a matter of fact, was was the one who um, had had retweeted something from from our conference. In fact, um, she she faced a lot a lot of pushback for talking openly about the connections between Black liberation and animal liberation. And I was curious, like, did you face similar resistance in the early days of your scholarship when sharing with people the influence? that patriarchy has on our relationships with other species? Um, like, do you face it still now? Like, I would imagine, yes, like that it's just as heavy. Like, how do you manage that? Well, I suspect that that the experience is probably very different because of social media. So I had this idea in 1974, and it was first published in a, in a, in the lesbian reader in 75 or 76. So between that and nine and 1989, when the book was published, when I told people, oh, there's a connection between meat eating and war, there's a connection between meat eating and women's oppression. <laughs> One person said, well, I'm a macrobiotic and macrobiotics say, you know, meat is too masculine for women to eat. And I thought, no, that's not quite it. <laughs> oh, oh, God. But people agreed with me. It was like for the wrong reason. No, most people just lifted their eyebrow. And I remember I was on the New York Coalition Against Domestic Violence and everybody was at my house and I was feeding them veggie burgers and they were talking about how they needed to have hamburgers. This was in the mid 80s. And I, I was so frustrated, like. Why can you not see that you are participating in violence and this violence is all connected? But then I stepped back and I thought, well, if they saw it, I'd have nothing to write. So get back to writing the book and help people see. And when the book came out, I think in 1990, what happened was animal rights activists, they had Singer and they had Reagan but they didn't have anybody that helped them understand how their social justice activism was reflected through their veganism or animal rights activism. And so my book sort of created a place to stand. I will say that probably more than a hundred newspapers reviewed the book and 90% of them hated it. 
so that would be whatever the equivalent uh, to what happened with F. But there are two significant differences. By the time they all hated the, the book, I'd already gone through a very intense decade of activism on behalf of public housing and against racism. And it's kind of like when people, when racists know where you live, that's scary. But when people hate what you've said in a newspaper review, that's fine. And, and, and Rush Limbaugh hated the book, too. And maybe that's the closest counterpart was he he talked against it for one whole summer and then talked against the schools that would bring me and he'd get people to to go to the the talks and all. But I wasn't afraid of him. I saw him as a blowhard. I was afraid of people who knew where I lived and uh, in the 80s and having gotten to the other side of that kind of real grassroots activism. I just became a stronger person. Now, the difference with AF, I think there's probably several. One is how brilliantly she is making the argument and how frightening that must be for people who don't want to think that way. I think her work and her words are so accurate and so insightful that to someone who doesn't want to change completely, it's going to be frightening. And that social media gives you an ability to attack without accountability in a way that I did not have. I mean, I didn't experience. The attacks that came against me were tied to accountability. They were in newspapers or they'd be in 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 radio shows where somebody would would talk to me and, and call me crazy or whatever. But this feels so personal at the same time that it's very impersonal. And I think the third thing is I knew feminists didn't want to hear this. I didn't have to be disabused of that by the large number of women who did not want to read my book or feminists who didn't want to read my book. But I think especially because there are so many remarkable people working on the intersectionality of race and animals in a way that's profoundly helpful, including your own work, Sebastian, and the work of Lauren Ornelas, that we perhaps thought that it had moved further, the conversation had moved further along in the culture than it really had. Just because you all were so successful in articulating it so clearly, we perhaps thought that it had risen to a level of accept acceptability that at least in Ask's experience it had not. I think also because she's female. There's a lot of bullying on uh, social media uh, against women. And that oh, boy. Social media, so social media kind of allows that. So I'm, I'm wondering if that intensified it as well. What do you think of that answer? No, I absolutely agree. Um, you know, like it, it was like for me watching for me watching Af go through what she did. It just, you know, it, it felt like, you know, it, it was just 
God, I can't even find words to describe it. Like, you know, it was, it was just such this excruciating experience of not just having your work invalidated, but, but knowing that, that this is a woman who is standing at the intersection of two different worlds. Um, not only did she have like extremely racist white people, um, that were devaluing her as an individual and devaluing her work. Um, you know, and then there's also this rejection of your blackness. And it's it's hard to ignore the influence that white supremacy has on your animal liberation work and, and on your like, you know, and on your work toward racial justice and, and, and black liberation as well, because, you know, like it, it, it almost has convinced us as a community, like collectively as black people, that, you know, that if you care about other species, then it makes you a traitor in some capacity to your blackness. Um, and, and, and it means somehow that, that you yourself have, have sided with white supremacy because animal rights or animal liberation is this exclusively white space. And, you know, and, and when you have blackness as a political identity, you're not allowed to, like, to do, to do both. And so, you know, and, and, just like, you know, and, and I, I could, I could feel her pain because like in a certain way that I, ex I, I experience it too. Um, but you know, I just can't imagine experiencing it as profoundly as she would as a woman of color. Um, you know, who, who, who lives with this in a very different way than I do. And, you know, and it just made me wonder, like, you know, how, like, is this like, you know, are we repeating history? Because, you know, okay. Yeah. Like, you know, you, you have been doing this for, for decades. And like, you know, and, and how it, it made me want to ask the question how it had um, manifested for you. And like, and, and if it's different now, um, you know, because I imagine that like that, that we have progressed the conversation in a lot of ways through your work. Um, and because we had access to that scholarship um, that that influences us in, in you know, and, and will continue to influence for generations to come. And, you know, and, and if like having that like behind us has has made it easier and and created a space for us to like you know to, to actually like explore these different things i like you know i i'm curious i'm curious now like you know like what what inspires you like you know because because uh, i feel like we have come so far in like in the past 20 or 30 years from from where we had been as a movement um you know people aren't just eating veggie burgers now like you know there's a whole like there's a whole plethora of, of products that are available now that we didn't have access to that, that make, you know, that make veganism more accessible for people that make it more attractive for, for people. Um, so, so I guess like, you know, in following up from that, like I, I do want to know like what, what does inspire you now? Like what, 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 what makes you feel like, you know, we're, we're moving into a more radical space. Okay, uh, thanks. I, I, I love that question. I just want to return uh, first to a couple things in this conversation about that. Oh, yeah, I jumped all over the place. So just, just like, you know, return to whatever you like. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I forgot to name Breeze, and Breeze is important work. I think Breeze is identity, identifying of white, the white fragility was very important and that the whites coming after AF probably reflected that white fragility, um, uh, that uh, the needing to know who I am. Uh, one of the things that I've tried to talk about in the past 25 years is that Western culture is highly committed 
to creating subjects by having other beings as objects. In other words, my experience of subjectification in a Western culture is supposed to occur through having other objects, other subjects who have become objects. So, you know, classically, subjectification in um, pre-Civil War United States of whites included knowing that African-Americans were slaves. And Toni Morrison talks about that, that that whites knew what freedom was because not just in the positive, but in the negative, because they were looking at African-Americans as slaves. So our subjectification to begin with is fragile because it requires others to be objects. And if those others say, I don't want to be an object, I don't want to be your absent referent, then you provoke or evoke this white fragility. On the other hand, and here's probably a similarity between what AF experienced and uh, something that Josephine Donovan and I talk about in the feminist care tradition and animal ethics, that in response to a, a culture that doesn't just objectify or, or create objectification so that others get subjectified, but creates an equivalency that women are seen as being like animals, how do we respond to that? What's the political or theoretical response? Well, the first response is to say, there is no connection. How dare you say women are like animals? Our whole purpose is to say women are not like animals. Women are like men and they should be seen as human. And the second thing is to simply use it as a metaphor and just say women were treated like animals and we're moving beyond that. And the third is to say there is a reason, there is a connection, and let's look at it. So you're taking that human less than human, subhuman, other than human hierarchy, and you're not trying to situate someone in there, but explode it to show how it worked. And that is threatening. So when AF comes along and says, we've got to look at the way African-Americans have been animalized and the way this animalizing of African-Americans feeds racism. It, the, then she might be provoking those same responses. No, there is no connection. Don't make a connection. We are human beings. Don't link us with animals. So, you know, back to your original question, there is, I think, a key connection between reactions by feminists to my work and the work of other feminist animal activists and, and the reaction that AF experienced. You are belittling us by saying we are like something else. They can't get outside of the system enough to see the system has created that belittling by having already belittled the other animals. All right, so I'm going to segue from that to what inspires me. All of you inspire me. My God, you know, for... The, the 1980s, I was very involved in, in social change and grassroots activism, but it was around human-related issues that were very, very important to me. But I felt very alone uh, trying to write this book. I mean, I spent 15 years trying to figure it out, and during most of that time, probably had conversations with just a few people about it. Now, that was probably very helpful for me uh, in the long run. It allowed me to be creative and sort of 
uh, go where I needed to go and whatever. As a rural activist, I was used to kind of sometimes being on my own anyway. But there were times that I really despaired and I wondered if I'd ever finished the book. And now, whether I'm in the at a conference like the one where I met you, Sebastian, or uh, I was just on campus in Ohio State and met some young young college students who who really want to work and and thinking through issues uh, about interconnections, that inspires me. I I'm not alone. I am amidst wonderful, talented people. And I get to learn what they're thinking and what they're doing. And we do it over delicious meals, whether it's in Dublin or Seattle or New York or London, wherever, Australia, uh, France, wherever I've been. I get to meet wonderful people doing wonderful things who believe in change and are working to make it happen. And we're eating delicious food. And the other thing that inspires me is the animals that have been in my lives. When I finished a book, oh, probably 15 years ago, I thought, well, I keep thinking I'm, t- <laughs> I'm done with this subject. Because when I finished Sexual Politics of Meat after 15 years, I thought, well, that's that. Now what am I going to do? And of course, within two weeks, you know, people were sending me images and I had, I, I needed to think <laughs> that through. So I, I learned I, I wasn't done. But I I'd finished this book of prayers for animals and I thought, well, I don't think I'll ever be done. Animals shaped who I was, who I am. They gave me so much throughout my life. I'm going to constantly be living a life that's indebted to who they have been. They helped create the subject, Carol Adams, not an object, but they helped me know who I was as a subject. And so I think that just abides very deeply within me. I think at this point, I've, I've got the ability to walk away from what's negative sufficiently that I can still sort of get some sleep at night or, you know, take a break and then come back and have this experience of nurturance amidst uh, a wonderful community. Carol, thank you so much. Carol, I would like to thank you so much for spending time with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure and an inspiration speaking with you. Your work is so important and it's fascinating. I'd also like to take this opportunity to thank you for everything that you continue to do on behalf of both humans and other animals. Well, thank all three of you for all you're doing and for having this wonderful conversation, uh, the 10th one on uh, interconnections and helping to bring other people into this conversation and empowering us all to 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 move forward with um, equipped with an understanding of how systemic oppression works. I hope I've helped today and I hope people listening who want to interact with me go to my website. They can email me from my website and Uh, Let me know what points I missed. (laughs) (laughs) Not many at all. It really has been such a pleasure, Carol. I learned so much from you. It's, I feel so privileged.
Why don't it bring me to white?